0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the launch edition of No Driving Gloves, the newest podcast in the automobile hobby. You have John, Derek, and Will with you tonight. We're going to touch on some things. The main topic of conversation we're going to launch into this evening is kind of a discussion of barn finds and what the definition is. I think all three of us have a different take on what a barn find is, what it should be. All of us have had recent experience with various definitions of barn finds, and we all have a different choosing of how we should treat those barn finds in the end. So I'm going to say I I got a call mid-last summer through our local uh, British Automobile Club. Uh, I'm a member of so many different car clubs, it's a little bit ridiculous. And uh, he, he had a friend that had passed away unexpectedly, and they had this little sports car tucked away in their garage for 10-15 years that the guy's brother had bought brand new and the next thing you know it it gets pushed to the back burner and this was the summer that it was going to get restored and obviously somebody else had something to say about that this car came along so you know that's kind of how i get introduced to some of my barn finds does anybody have a
1: different take being in the being in the industry in a small community that that big oak garage is in Everybody knows that my father and I are into cars. So if something comes up, we're the first place they stop. Had an opportunity, matter of fact, last week to buy a 55 first series Chevrolet truck. Uh, I'd been knowing the truck for a long time. It was five miles from the shop. The lady called me, offered me the truck. I went and bought it, you know. So that's generally how we find out about more than anything in in this little small community that we live in. And, And they're still out there. You know, there's still tons of them out there. You just got to be at the right place at the right time.
0: What makes sure is a barn find? The car I was called about was a a 1971 or 72 Lotus 7 Series 4 that literally was parked 20 years ago. And it, it lived for those 20 years, two miles next to the largest Lotus collection in the world. Nobody knew that it was there. So it kind of was a find. Did people know about your car, Will, or the truck? Or was it just something that somebody had in the barn and it was time to tear it down? I had an old 79 Little Red Express that I had stored in a um, relative's barn on the old family farm. And when that corn crib was to be torn down a few years ago, I had to make the decision, was I going to actually restore that truck? or was it going to go away so somebody in Moline Illinois ended up purchasing a uh, barn find little red express so it literally was a barn find but
1: yeah I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't call it a barn find because people knew about it so to speak um uh, maybe barn stored <laughs> yeah. I mean just about everybody in the community knew about this truck because the man that owned it was uh he was a he was one of the postmen out here so Everybody knew Mr. Lambert's truck, you know, and I, I just feel fortunate enough to be able that they called me first to buy it. You know, it, it was, I mean, it was not really in a barn. It was in a shed next to their house. I mean, some people call them barns. And in the south, a barn is, is where you store hay and your horses go to eat, you know. So, so that that's another issue. Is it a barn or is it a shed or is it a garage? You know, whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the definition of, of barn find, uh, everybody is kind of, you know, just loosely using that term, you know, barn as some type of outbuilding that's that's not the house. About a year and a half ago, I guess I had what I guess I would think of as, or I might refer to as kind of the epitome of a barn find. I I had good fortune that a friend out in California was hired to go extract a vehicle from an estate that had been Locked away for many, many years, an old farm in Indiana. And uh, while he was there getting an Auburn out of this estate, the, the owner uh, or the the family member, you know, of that property said, well, you know, I got another one out in the, the barn, the other barn out back, literally a barn um, that used to have, you know, cows stalls in it. And have, you know, all those, you know, the hay mounds and all the, you know, equipment. A lot of the equipment was still stored in the barn. And behind these, some pieces of equipment, an old carriage that was in there, uh, was this 1923 Peerless. And uh, Peerlesses were built, obviously, up in Cleveland. You know, it was literally stuck in that barn in about 1957 or 58, um, if I recall correctly. And You know, the good fortune, my friend said, hey, I know the exact guy that would want this car. Let me get a hold of him. And we were able to get, he was able to get in touch with me. And fortunately, Indiana wasn't terribly far from where I was living at the time in Ohio. And I ran over there and checked it out. And literally, you know, I'm being an early car guy, you know, brass era, horseless carriage, you know, classic era. I think in my circle Um, Of people I knew only like two other people even knew that this car might exist in Indiana. Uh, This car had been lost for a number of years, you know, so it was kind of almost the epitome of a barn find because you know, nobody really knew that car was there. And it finally, you know, kind of saw the light of day again. And, you know, now the the Peerless Club, you know, those people that keep track of these cars, we can kind of register that car is still existing.
0: Yeah, see, to me, that is the definition of a barn find. Anymore, it seems, see your television shows or there's a really popular website right now that they display barn finds and list barn finds for sale. And it seems all you have to do is have a dusty car. You haven't haven't run or started. I mean, I think we used to call the ads when we used to act, you know, before eBay and you had your local classifieds, we called those ran when parked. And <laughs> that's what a lot of these things seem to be. It's the, you know, it's a 1986 Dodge Daytona Turbo Z with 6,500 miles on it. It hasn't probably been run since 1988. Well, there might be a reason because... Being a fan of 80s front wheel drive Chrysler products, those head gaskets were a little bit fragile. And, you know, my first car being an 024. I can't tell you how many times, fortunately, my dad paid for a head gasket for me in that car because (laughs) I was a little bit rough on him. And, you know, that was kind of the problem with the front wheel drives. But... You know that's what a barn find is now. Just because it was, you know, something my great grandfather bought and decided not to drive and wasn't going to trade it in and was eventually going to get around to fixing, you know, that, that that to me isn't a barn find. What Derek, you've given me that, you know, what I would classify as a barn find.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not, you know, well, I guess I could, you know, uh, take the rugs out of the house and go clean, you know, beat them, you know, clean over top of my Falcon, a 61 Ford Falcon, and uh, put it out at the road for, you know, for sale as a barn find and probably get an extra 1000 or $2,000 out of it because it's got... Dust covered. Yeah, that that's I guess that's one of my other uh, takes on the barn find is it seems that term is being used to raise the
0: value of a car when sometimes it, it really shouldn't. I don't know if you saw it, Derek, but I think the first time I met you when it's probably close to 10 years ago now. Hey, hey, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, let's real age, <laughs> was a uh, Mustang event. Uh, one of the national 45th or 50th or 40th anniversary Mustang things. And one of our local gentlemen brought out a Shelby Mustang. It was a 350 Hertz edition car, and he sat it up in one of the areas of the show field that might have been the race paddock. And he put some hay bales out and everything and the windshield was dusty and, you know, kind of made it look like this barn find because he hadn't used the car in about 20 years and the barn find term was just beginning the rise in its popularity. But this was a car he had bought new, he had used. A matter of fact, it had a trailer hitch on it that he welded on in like 67 or 68. I guess he didn't buy it new. He bought it when Hertz sold them off. And he used to tow his race car around with the thing you know he didn't think of it more than just you know a pickup truck at the time you know it's set up as this revered barn find i don't know if you saw that at the event um there might be a picture of it somewhere in my um you know thousands of digital pictures you know yeah,
2: yeah that event was so long ago i i don't remember i know i i remember not getting to leave the building very much because i was uh, traveling with two cars that we were watching over yeah. but i i seem to remember a little bit of of Possibly seeing that car out on the field and kind of
1: thinking that's a little weird that's as bad as putting the crybaby dolls out on your tires
0: <laughs> oh, wow. i I don't know if it's that bad and, uh, at one point in time those were cool too but, you know, if, if as a guy who does woodworking as a hobby, run one of those things through a bandsaw put it in the front yard for nineteen ninety five somebody's going to buy it that afternoon
1: <laughs> if, if you're hauling around if, if you're hauling around hay bales. For your car show display, I mean, come on, <laughs> okay,
0: come on, Mister. I bring ramps and mirrors and you know strobe lights,
1: <laughs> but hey bales. Well, hey,
2: if if you got if you've got a nineteen thirty Model A pickup, you know, and you got them in the back to sit on, it's okay, it's okay. You know, if you're I using agree. them around your nineteen seventy two Mustang, <no>. and <laughs> no,
1: no, no. <laughs> Well, I guess hay is for horses. So. <laughs> Taking well,
0: the actually, pony cars to new levels. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Instead of you know what you do, Will, with setting up your ramps and all your you know axle stands, getting the up, getting the mirrors, I'm going to take my Peerless out. You know, put a couple of hay bales under it, jack it up, set it on them, take the wheels off, put some mirrors under there,
1: <laughs> get some little pygmy
2: goats.
0: <laughs> It'd be a pet zoo. <laughs> What's, you know, everybody's intention with their barn finds? The Lotus, I personally chose not to exercise my right to purchase on it. I could have got a heck of a deal, but, you know, I, I just didn't want to take the time to To restore it, I want to come home and drive my cars. So, uh, you know, it was acquired by the museum that I'm with, and uh, our intention is to do kind of a cleanup preservation, being a local car. It's a really nice artifact to have, and it fits in with the collection. It'll be running and driving and brought back to a new condition, but not necessarily restored to showroom new. We're doing it as a museum, an educational tool. So people can experience and see and hear and smell the way these cars were when they were built. What are your plans, Derek, or Will? I can jump in. Um,
2: obviously, coming from the museum world, uh, trained in conservation, and my aim is to preserve the car as much as possible. It's a pretty solid car, having been put away for so long. You know, it's a lot of original pieces and components and finishes. You know, it's at the original interior, although it's you know, kind of tore up by the raccoons that were in the barn. Um, it's the original California top, which is, for anybody that doesn't know what that is, that's a, a non-removable, and non-folding, basically what looks like convertible top Uh, so it looks like a touring car but the top does not fold down and it does not come off anything like that actually has its original plate glass side curtains that um, go in to make it basically into a full sedan the paint I question paint I don't know that it's the original paint it looks to be probably a a repaint Uh, obviously I got to do more testing and, and research on it yeah my goal is to go through the engine all the mechanicals transmission yeah rear end do get it all running properly make sure everything's solid Basically stabilize the body for structural safety, and uh, you know repaint what has to be repainted, which right now are the fenders and running boards because they were removed by the owner that stuck it in the barn, and he was going to restore the car. Unfortunately, passed away about six months after he got the car, so those have been already stripped. So those will get repainted, and I'm just going to put the car back together and drive the wheels off of it. You know, I'm I'm going to preserve it, but I'm also going to use it, drive it, and get it out there so people can see it.
0: I think this is probably an opportune time not to probably cut Will off, but we use these terms and for you and I, Derek especially, and even Will, he has some of the uh, restoration background. Go into a little bit of the definition for listeners who might not be aware of exactly what would constitute a rest or a preservation. You know, restorations have their different levels of taking it back to showroom new or a particular point in time, things like that. When you say, you know, preservation, go, go a little bit more into detail because being your museum background and conserving and preservation I kind of go into that so as podcast goes on these terms will be referred to we'll redefine them over as we go along too but let's let's start this off right and not leave people wondering for a few episodes
2: yeah yeah let's start uh let's start this off with uh, me being the guy that everybody hates got it um <laughs> Uh, obviously, you know, coming from the museum end of things, it's, it's a little different world than your typical, um, you know, automotive collector restoration uh, world. In the preservation end of things, you know, conservation conservators are, that's the profession of preservation. You know, you've got your art conservators in the art museum world, your objects conservators, all these different types of conservators. And what we're aiming to do is preserve the object in the condition that essentially the museum museum receives it in, um, if it's in good enough condition, we will restore objects. Yeah, you know, we do do that in the museum world, and we can get into a talk on that too. But. Preservation is really using, and what we do is we use reversible treatments as, as much as possible. So anything we do to the object, so in this case a, a vehicle, a car, is reversible. Any of the adhesives we use to, um, you know, adhere loose paint back down, we can actually take that adhesive back off and the paint would be loose again. Um, it's it's a weird world, I, I know, But, you know, that's, that's kind of the idea is to preserve it at a certain point in its life. And then, you know, when we get into restorations, obviously we do almost the same thing. Um, We try to restore a vehicle or an object back to a certain point in its life. Be it, you know, when it the the moment it rolled off the assembly line, or in the case of I worked on the project to bring the nineteen sixty-five Lotus type thirty-eight that Jim Clark uh, drove to victory at the Indianapolis five hundred and sixty-five, kind of managed a big part of that project. And we aimed to restore that car to the moment it crossed the finish line. And nothing better and you know than that. Um, you know, we didn't want it to be a hundred point concourse restoration. We wanted it to represent a moment in time. Um, I don't know if that's that's a clear enough definition, but that's that's kind of the quick rundown.
0: It's a good definition and, and I don't want people to think that you're the bad guy because remember I played in the museum conservation world between restoration careers when I was with the shop in Virginia to my present job. I, I stopped off and played in the museum conservation world and wasn't necessarily playing with cars more like big boats and rocket ships and statues. It it is a different world and a unique world, and I think that's part of this podcast is to educate people on some of the the differences that we'll discuss as time goes on. Well, now that Derek's talked about gluing his paint back on so that he can unglue it in the future, and me talking about, and well, we might make it make it look new. What are you going to do with your pickup truck?
1: Well, <laughs> I, I'm going to do what I call preserve it. <laughs> now um what i plan on doing with it is is build myself a uh, shop truck uh i have a uh generally i'll build a shop truck every couple of years and then somebody winds up having to have it worse than me and i sell it and then i kick myself in the butt so then i build another one so it'll be my next little shop truck i'm going to leave a straight axle under the front but i will use a dropped axle and dropped leaf springs disc brakes i'll take that engine out and i'm going to put a a 261 out of a 57 two two ton truck i'll make it all efi fuel injected six speed manual transmission disc brakes on the back probably uh i'll probably do a four link with coilovers or something like that on the back and you know put a later model rear end under it and and just really drive it and enjoy it and uh, really really not cut anything up on it just it's it's such a good truck and it's got cool history uh, i'm not going to do anything that can't really be re- reversed if somebody would want to put it back original but you know I, i'm in the hot rod industry so we're, we're into taking an older car and, and and making it drive and handle and stop and perform like a late model car i'm not going to the extreme with this one but generally that's what we do so just something cool to Put around town in, run to the parts store, or you know, if I need to go to a show in Nashville or, or Columbus, Ohio, or something like that, and hop in and drive up there.
0: Things like that make sense to do, and in, in my you know my humble opinion, because because you put that truck together so that it can be used and driven and seen, that's what gets the youth involved because all of a sudden they see this cool, cool truck. I know my. Uh, 13-year-old stepdaughter, she, she goes crazy over the 50s-era trucks when she sees them going down the road. But if it wasn't for people that made them usable on kind of a daily basis, or the shop trucks, she'd never be exposed to that, and she would live in the worlds of Hondas and uh, Hondas and things like that. So that works. And then, you know, will say Derrick's is just as justified because it's really preserving history and it shows people the way the cars were done. We might hate street riders when they cut up su- such and such a car, but my argument's always been, I had the opportunity to buy that car just as much as the guy that's cutting it up. And as long as it's not the last one in the world, I guess it's okay.
2: <laughs> you know, I, and that's what I was, I was going to say. You know, I mean... It, sometimes it really comes down to what the car is. Um, you know, my my 23 Peerless that I pulled out of a barn, uh, you know, right now the Peerless Club, we know of like six or seven of them that exist. You know, it's it's one of the early American automobiles with a factory V8 engine. You know, it it would be heartbreaking for someone to cut that up and, and turn it into a hot rod. But you know, you, you find a, a 50s era, you know, Chevy pickup, Ford pickup, one of the... I mean, there's, you know, thousands upon hundreds of thousands of those built. There's still thousands of them that that exist. You know, it, it, I think sometimes it does come down to, you know, be smart with, you know, the vehicle you have, and, and if there's some significance behind it, maybe don't cut it up into a hot rod. If it's another Model T, hot rod it.
1: <laughs> but what if... What if that the the peerless that you own? What if it was missing half the body parts? The the engine transmission was gone. The front axle was gone. It was just basically kind of a hole of a car. Would would there be enough parts out there to put it back so it appeared original? Or what would you do in a in a situation like that? Would would you you know, maybe put a late model drivetrain in it and get the outside looking as original as possible with, you know, made panels for it. Um, would you do something like that or just I don't know? It's just something I've always wondered. If you do find a car like that and half of it's gone, what do you do with it?
2: No, that's I, I, that's a cool question actually. Um, you know, I think I think with something as rare as the the V8 Peerless, um, you know, had I found out about that car and it was in that kind of condition, missing a bunch of parts. The way I approach that is, you know, someone that owns one of those cars that has one restored or is restoring it. Those are good parts to make sure that other car is put together with original components and original parts. So I would have probably tried to find that car a home with another owner of one of those cars. Um, But on the, on the flip side of things, going to what you're talking about, actually, um, you know, my father and I have been restoring cars and, and working on cars for years. He owns a restoration shop. We actually have a 1928 Marmon model 68 sedan. And it was one of the project cars that were, you know, kind of sitting waiting and, uh, we had it outside, uh, waiting, you know, to, we were moving stuff around in the shop. This is when I still lived back home. And, uh, Yeah, we were building an expansion onto the shop and had a a tree service come in that was supposed to top a tree down and and bring it down in sections. And they decided it was quicker and easier to cut it down in whole. And they cut it down in whole right across the 28 Marmon. Uh, So it it crushed the body. It blew, of course, you know, 20s cars, they've got wood frame inside of them with the the steel body, you know, the sheet metal body over top. Uh, And there were splinters of the wood frame for the body all over the yard so you know we what kind of is the plan for that you know it's it's got a full steel structure under the original body now um you know putting and we were able to kind of pull the metal back out and work it back out and the plan with that now that it's had that much damage done to it we had to build basically a steel uh you know Internal framework for the body is to kind of do something with a late model um, driveline, but keep it looking more original. We've actually toyed around with the ideas of maybe like a Jaguar engine because they, they kind of have that look of... The earlier engine blocks, um, you know, the inline uh sixes they had, and you know, some of that just to kind of give it the look of you know, maybe somebody that doesn't know anything about cars would be fooled, but you know, make it run drive like a modern, more modern <laughs> car. So, you know, it, you know, I'm one of those people that I'm with some cars, I'm like, hey, I got to preserve this thing or restore it back to uh, original, and in other cases, you know, there are those times where you just got to do something with it and heck why not have a little fun
0: exactly yeah you no know, i've worked in the commercial restoration worked for a shop we had you know every, everybody was a, a client of ours and the you know in answer to your question well when you're into that world it's kind of like your world how much money do you have that's right um if uh if you brought me that Peerless and it was missing half the body, and the you know crankcase was missing, and the you know block was cracked, and things like that, what are you going to do do with it? If you've got enough money, we can build that car again. That's true. Will Will you make your money back? Probably not, because you know if you take any car in the world, uh, street car with an interior. I think the baseline is 2,000 hours to do a frame-off restoration. I don't care if it's a 55 Chevrolet pickup that's worth $20,000 when you're done or, uh, you know, a $1.5 million Duesenberg. They're all 2,000 hours, provided you don't have to make any parts, provided there's no corrosion, and it's 100 bucks an hour. So... You're gonna have two hundred grand into that twenty thousand dollar Chevy, you're gonna have two hundred grand and grand into that million and a half dollar Duisenberg. Granted the parts are and that's labor. Yeah. The parts are gonna be a little bit differing in the factors. But if you wanted to have that peerless and that was your car and you remember, you know, a date in it, or your grandfather or great grandfather had one and it was in this picture with them, and you want it back, and money's no object you do it that way or a lot of times you know the the rod shop saves them you know granted they you know cut them up and change things about them but the car's still here and they still you know help display the line so it really goes back to in, in the commercial world the for profit world in unless money's no object it's whatever you know, serves best. And, you know, Derek's right. It's usually better for those cars to give up all of their parts to save save somebody else being, you know, literally organ donors for another car. There's a lot of parts there and they could go over to the few remaining cars. Hopefully, you know, things like that go to the right people with their hearts in the right places for the historical aspect. But, you know, there's been some very talented people make some very wonderful creations out of some very rare cars. So it's, you know, to each his own. And, you know, I don't knock a guy for, excuse me, cutting up a 41 Lincoln. I don't knock a guy for spending more than what his 1981 Chevrolet truck is worth so that he can have a mint condition, you know, square bodied Chevy. So you, you you do what you like and, you, you know, you go around once, make yourself happy. True that. You know, we can get as accurate when it comes to the conservation. I did a preservation on the Lotus 27. It was raced in the 1962 season and put up in that fall and never turned a wheel ever, ever again. Went through a couple of collectors' hands, ended up in our collection, and we decided we wanted to make the vehicle run, which involved changing some of the rubber parts, disassembling the motor, going through the motor. Every bolt I took out of that car, my notes are anal enough that every bolt went back into the exact same hole it came out of. I did not necessarily get the head positions of the bolts the exact same, but, you know, what you do, what your budget allows or what time allows and, you know, what your end purpose is. And with that car, our end purpose was to have a vehicle that represented the car as it left the track in October of 1962. And that's, again, restoring, or in this case, preserving To that point in time, we didn't fix any of the body cracks. We didn't remove any of the adhesives. Um, I used a a chemical solution to remove the corrosion that was um, beginning to peek its way through some of the uh, chrome on the uh, suspension components to neutralize that corrosion, but instead of having to strip them, you go back and you use a product from the conservation world, which is a a clear sealant that is removable, but it also prevents those from corroding again. So we still have the correct, you know, the proper chrome plating and things on it. You know, there's just all kinds of ways to approach this and each case is different. And there's three of us here. And really, I bet we come from six different worlds when it, you know, in approaching projects. Yeah, we
2: definitely do. Yeah, um, but sorry, Will. Um, I was just going to jump in. Right. John said something I think really important there, which is, you know, when you even when we're doing the, the preservation of one of these cars, um, safety is always first. Um, oh yeah, you know, and that's you know on on my Peerless, on the Lotus, on whatever car we're talking about, you know, all of those, uh, you know, safety pieces of equipment, the brakes, all of those, you know, the rubber components, every yeah those are being essentially restored because you want to be safe you're going to use you know as close to original style of parts components things like that that you can but you're going to make sure that when you're out that car is stopping that car is safe to be out on the road running doing what it needs to do you know i from the world i come in uh, come in from you know, safety is, I always put safety first, um, especially you're dealing with museum collections. Sometimes we're running cars that are one of a kind. We want to make sure those cars are going to stop if they need to stop and and do what they're supposed to do. And they're, you know, the engine's not going to have some catastrophic issue and throw a rod through the side of the block. You know, so even though we talk about preservation as as kind of, you know, we got to keep that car as, you know, as original as possible and, and treat it a certain way, we're still going to make it safe.
1: Yeah, safety is number one for us, too. I mean, you know, we're trusting a guy that's going to be driving his car 80 miles an hour down the road. You know, he's going to be keeping up with traffic. He's going to be driving to California and back. And, you know, that's something we don't, you know, we don't take very lightly. It's... uh I, Just got to run, got to stop, and, you know, got to keep up with traffic not run hot and leave them stranded. And, you know, that's very, very, very high on our list of things. So, and, you know, going back to the preservation and restoration, you know, at the end of the day, if the guy's got enough money and he wants a restored Peerless and, say, a hot rod Peerless, you can create a hot rod Peerless from the steel that comes in on the steel truck. You know, you can build your own chassis, you can build a body, you can build an exact replica of that Peerless that's a hot rod. And you didn't hurt nobody, but he's got a hot rod and he's got an original. If, you know, if that's something that somebody's wanting to do, that's something that definitely can be done nowadays.
0: Yeah, but this, I guess, you learned in the uh, commercial shops. This is America, and we can replace, we can put a new motor in a car, we can put new axles, we can put new tires, we can put new wheels, we can put new upholstery, we can put new gauges, we can put new wood, but you better give me that body. <laughs> you know, I, I, There was an instance we were working on a, a Jaguar XK120, and literally we were putting it up on the jack stands to begin disassembly, and the car broke in half. And it happens I could have ordered a body out of England for $30,000, but that wasn't going to be the car to that guy. We were putting an interior in it. We were putting a top. We were, you know, everything else was going to be new in this car because it was just the way the car was. But he had to have that body. So um, I think $100,000, $120,000 later, he he had his body with all the rust repair, all the rust gone. But... And it probably was 80 percent new sheet metal because there's just nothing left. But and that's one of the funny things is, you know, people get attached to certain things. Um, I think if you we were discussing this and we were living in the United Kingdom, it would be different because throwing a new body into, you know, a, a mini restoration or a Jaguar restoration or an MG restoration, there's companies over there stamping new bodies. And fortunately, I'm going to say Wills' industry and the street route industry, I think that's going to become a little bit more of the norm in North America now that we have companies producing the full full bodies for Chevelles and Camaros and Mustangs. And, you know, you you can literally pick up a catalog now and order every single part to build a 1968 Camaro without ever starting with a 1968 Camaro. It all can come in on the little brown truck and maybe a semi for the body but so it's just as the you know world goes along and it's again the definitions of everything is you know we started talking about barn finds and here we are talking about Brand new you know cars. different <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about mail mail ordering you know the the internet world twenty twenty eight 28 peerless and <laughs> you know metal over wood bodies and things like that and Hey and I and I've brought it to here here let me get on Amazon and order you a 69 Camaro. Well,
1: it's, so, it's funny you bring that up because we have a 56 Chevrolet in the in the shop right now. That's a brand new body. A brand new chassis. I mean nothing well, and it's on, it's not
2: even the the late model. I mean you can you can go to a catalog and and buy everything you need to build a Model T Ford. Yeah. Well, chassis, body, engine, boom, done. I mean you you can build a brand new Model T Ford.
1: I guarantee you there's twice as many 32 Fords running on the road right now than Henry Ford ever produced. <laughs> and and Brookville sells probably two or three a day. I mean, they're all steel, stamped out just like the way Henry did it. And they sell like hotcakes. I mean, they're it's not a Henry body, but it it's they don't sell for much less.
0: You know, there's not many Henry bodies left that are either not in a collection where they've been properly restored or they're in a collection where they've been heavily modified. So, and Brookville does a great job with their bodies and, you know, the, the, the pieces they do. So it's just, it's just, you know, this car world's an interest, you know, an interesting hobby. I think that's why we're here, you know, talking about it. And hopefully you're here listening. Well, I hope it's interesting or else people are going to be really bored, John.
1: <laughs> well, we got a, We've got an, uh, a Henry Boddy 32 Ford Roadster coming in the shop next week, matter of fact. He seemed to stay busy up there, so. Got plenty to do.
2: He's he's good at just going in and cutting the cars up and putting those new engines in, all that good stuff. So, keeps him busy over there. That's right.
1: That's what we do. Hot rods. Yep.
0: We can pick on Will a little bit, Derek, because it's easy. He can do whatever he wants. I was, um, uh, give a shout out to the uh, Maker Cast podcast. Uh, recently was a guest on it, and he was kind of talking about when you know you go in and you're making something for these cars or you're making that part that's on that doesn't exist, but you've got to make it. He said, Well, you can just go in and do this and do that and do that. I said, No. The guy say the race car uh, engineer in 1955 when he was working on this race car, he could go in and make this modification. And so I can go in and make this modification. And no, I can't. I've got to go back and I've got to put myself in the head of that that engineer from 1955 and make the part he made. He had creative license to do whatever he wanted to. I have to research what was done so it's done properly. And you know that that adds a little bit. you know, a little bit to the complications on what we do, not saying what Will does is easy, but it's, you know, he has a little bit more creative license, I think, that, uh, in the rod industry than this, uh, the uh, restoration industry. Now, I'll let Will yell at me for saying that. But
1: <laughs> Hey, but. I tell you, it, it is it is difficult being still being cool, but being different than everybody else. Because your, your car's still got to have the look. It's still got to set right. It's got to have the right wheels. But being a little bit different than the guy that's parked next to you to win that award or to make your customer be like, well, my car looks just like his. You know, it, it, it's, it's tough. And, you know, that's, that's one of the hardest things that, that we struggle with is, is what are we going to do to this 56 Chevrolet that hadn't been done before, you know, but still be cool um and it, it's 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 kind of hard to deal with sometimes
0: well it amazed me i think one of the first times i visited your shop we'll talk about the car in a future episode but you talked about you know sectioning a half inch out here and shortening a fender two inches or four inches and things you don't notice until it's next to something else or you look at that original thing and for you to go in and say hey if we take two inches out of this fender and shorten it just that much but and to know where to take it out of the fender and that that that's that creative artistry that personally i don't know if i will ever have you know i'm really like i say i'm really good at recreating the past but i'm not really good at designing something new i'm too rigid in my thinking it has to be done this way and you know, that is, you know, it's an amazing talent you have and your your team has. I know it's not all you. You have your, you know, designers and that, but you have the final say. I mean, your your name's on the door, so, so to speak, and what, you know, if you make the call and you make it wrong, you know, that affects the food on the table for the next couple of years for you because it takes a couple of years to recover from those mistakes in your industry.
1: You know, one of the, one of the biggest things is proportions. You know, a car... You have to be able to pass your eye over a custom car and nothing slaps you in the face. It's just got to flow. And and that's one of the biggest things is, is you know, if you're building a tail dragger, everything needs to kind of flow backwards. If you're building a hot rod, everything needs to kind of have a forward motion. You know, it's just, it's, we kind of...
0: But I want to put a picnic table wing on the back of my car. Well,
1: <laughs> how, how do we do that? Well, first off... <laughs> I'm gonna send you down the road because <laughs> we're not doing that at Big Oak Garage. <laughs> well,
0: I know that's kind of an insult, but I, I, you know, I'll be one of the first to admit. As I got into this world from the, you know, the um, hot rod Hondas and motor swaps and things, so while I, you know, will jab fun at them, I would not be where I was in today without. You know, building Hondas when we were back in college, Will. I know you saw, you know, my CRX with 17-inch wheels and the Japanese motor swap and things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's funny where we all come from and how we get to the places we get. So... You know, hopefully we didn't, ail- I didn't alienate the listeners with the picnic table wing, but it's, uh, I, I <laughs> you
1: know,
0: I hope. I hope it's what was- <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to, hey, I'm going to take the, well, I'm going to well, take the
2: conversation in, in a similar direction, but a little different. And, you know, John and, and Will, you can hop into this, maybe more so John wants to, when we come from preservation, you know, restoration, everything we're talking about here, you know, we look at what Will's doing down at Big Oak Garage and if we look back in automotive history and go back to the nineteen early nineteen hundreds up through the the thirties, um, you know, we had we had custom coach builders in this country, you know, the the companies that had been building carriages move over and start building custom bodies for automobiles. Um, you know, you had Murphy out in California, um, you know, LeBaron bodies, all these different companies that were making custom bodies doing essentially what Will's doing. I mean, it, you know, it, building something that's not really, and, and you know, this is, is a correlation here, obviously Will's starting with a body and, and customizing it. But, you know, in the future, when we look back, kind of like we look back now on on custom-bodied cars that customers could order, so hot rods that customers can order, you know, these are custom-ordered. These are things that, you know, the owner is choosing how to have them built and another owner comes along. Okay. That guy wants to get rid of it. Another owner comes along and he makes modifications to it and it keeps going. And and finally it gets to a point where this car is a hundred years old. Like some of the cars that have custom bodies, you know, we're dealing with now. What is right and wrong in restoring that car or, you know, do you, you know, or even having the right to do more custom work to it because, the sole intention of that car when it was ordered um, back then, or be it the cars at Will's building now, was to have them the way the owner wanted them. So does the new owner have the right to customize it the way he wants it, or does it need to be restored or preserved to a certain point in its life?
0: Now, you make very good points in that because I don't know how many of our listeners are aware, but if you ordered a, a Rolls-Royce or a Duesenberg or a Bugatti in, in that era, you got a chassis. And then you took it to a bodybuilder, and then you're right, they custom built you a piece to go on that. They sold you a frame, they sold you an engine, and how how that frame and engine appeared to the general public was a lot your decision. And then you get into this, you know, street ride industry began, and, you know, as a product of World War II, and the guys that didn't go out and rush out by MGTCs and TDs, they, they went and bought the the old Model Ts and Model As that weren't, you know, part, went to the war effort and built their belly tankers and their street rods and now those cars are being respected and, you know, they've even had categories at Pebble Beach and Amelia Island in recent years. So there is the respect to them. And a lot of my more recent career is dealing with race cars, and those are cars that were built crashed modified on a weekly basis so what is correct and what is wrong when you're doing that you know so you know there's a lot of good points in looking at where
1: we're at so well, the, at the end of the day the man writing a check is generally always right so <laughs> put it put it the way he wants it, it as a as
0: somebody who is dependent on a man writing a check like that I, I you know i understand it but it's you know Derek. Derek and I playing in a museum world. We look at it a little bit. Are the person writing the check at the end of the day? If they're not writing that one hundred and fifty thousand dollar check to to do the restoration, they're writing a you know a fifteen dollar check or a ten dollar check or to come in and see the product, and it has to be presented in such a way. So again, like you know, I alluded to early, three different people, six different opinions on the idea, and. I'm, I'm hoping you know hundreds of people listen to this, or thousands of people listen to this. You know, it creates tens of thousands of opinions. You know, we get maybe we'll get some feedback from our listeners on what we th- what they think about. You know, our opinions. I'll admit I'm wrong to some of you, and Derek's wrong to some of you, and Will's wrong to some of you. And then again, all three of us are right to some of you, and some of you are sitting there clamoring, going. I need my own podcast because I want to. I want to re, be a rebuttal, or I want to call in. Well, you know it's it's one of the it's one of those things, and I'm told many times when people vi- visit me at work that I do what they want to do. But there's a lot of stress in what we do. When it comes down to it, it is a fun. I think all the three of us have fun jobs. I don't think any of us would trade our jobs uh, for anything. We um, earn a living. Really playing, I've come to the little saying, I don't think I've ever really worked a day in my life because, you know, what I do, people retire to do. What all of us do, people love to retire, they go home and do on the weekends. As we've talked about, there's a lot of decisions and a lot of thinking that goes into every little decision that all of us make, whether it's building custom cars, whether it's doing a preservation, a conservation, a restoration, and things. So, do you guys agree or disagree? Or as we begin to wind this down, I agree
1: hundred percent. Just just because it's not your idea or it's not done the way you want it done, that don't make it wrong. You know. So I respect the uh, I, I respect something about every car in the world, and that, that's just how I look at things. Just because I like it, that don't mean you have to like it. But it's my car, so.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree 101% just because I want to agree more than Will. Um, <laughs> so so you, you agree 1.01? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I I agree because, you know, again, it, it, there's a lot of decisions that go into this, and it's all based on what that owner or, you know, what those of us in the museum world, whoever it is, the collector, whoever we're talking about, it's their passion um, you know, it's, it's coming from the point of what they love and what they appreciate. And when you get right down to it, it doesn't matter if you're a tuner guy. It doesn't matter if you're a brass era, horseless carriage guy. It doesn't matter if you're a street rodder. doesn't matter what end of this hobby or interest or job or whatever this is to our listeners or, um, anybody in it. We're all car people and it's all about, you know, the cars. And yeah, we all have a different opinion on what we like and what we want to see done with our cars. But when you get down to it, we all have the same basic interest. And it's it's these fantastic machines that we can do so many things
0: with. I think with that, we're probably going to go ahead and wrap up for today. If you have questions or comments, email us at nodrivinggloves at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to No Driving Gloves using your favorite podcast catcher. Follow No Driving Gloves, one word, on Facebook or Instagram. And most of all, please check out our page on Patreon where you can help keep our tires rolling.